0: Well, good to see everybody. I hope everyone got sufficient amounts of pecan pie over Thanksgiving because that's really what Thanksgiving is all about, isn't it? (laughs) Well, at least it is for me. We um, usually go, Kathy's sister is in East Texas out where they haven't yet invented the Internet. And it's it's uh, fun. At the same time, you sort of get withdrawals when you can't, you know, check email or anything like that. Anything. And so it's it's a blessing, but at the same time, you're, you're kind of glad to get back into your normal routine of, you know, uh, iPhone addiction or, or, or whatever it is that uh, the Internet is. But it's wonderful to be able to go and to just kind of get away and uh, to refocus on things that are – Important, like family, like extended time with God, like walking down a country road and seeing uh, the beautiful things that the Lord has made. Think about how God has guided your life thus far. If you look back at the turning points in your life, some of them are pretty well predictable, like when you think about graduations or weddings. These are transition moments in your life where you realize you can sort of anticipate them. In fact, you plan for them weeks, sometimes years in advance, the, uh, the transitions. But then there are the other transitions that God brings into your, to your life that you didn't plan for. In fact, you really only recognize them sometimes in hindsight. I can think about a few in my life. For example, I think about how God has used the guitar in my life. I began playing guitar when I was around 15, 16 years old, which is kind of a late bloomer for a musician, but began playing it, really enjoyed it, and enjoyed it so much so that I thought, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. <laughs> of course, at 15, 16, you know exactly what your life's going to look like. So I decided, you know, I was going to major in music at North Texas State University actually major in guitar performance so i went up there or over here up here i've been up here since then since 1985 Can you believe it's been that long ago 1985 doesn't sound long ago to you when you start doing the math that's a long time ago that's like 30 plus years anyway but god used that because it brought me to this area that brought me to to a particular class in which in the class the second thing in my list of things that I'll mention to you that God used was a cassette tape. Now, how many of you can say that God used a cassette tape to to shift your life? Okay, let's have lunch. <laughs> because you're like the only the second person in my life <laughs> that that's ever happened. I was in a class and I noticed that this guy had a cassette tape and it was I think it was a Michael W. Smith uh, tape, And so I asked him, I said, oh, are you a Christian? And he said, I am a Christian. We got to talking and we really hit it off and the guy ended up being my roommate. And he had a friend who invited me to a particular church in Denton. And that church was unlike any church I'd ever been to before that really got me into the Word, introduced me to Dallas Seminary, and it, I trace it all back to that cassette tape. A cassette tape God used to guide my life. And in fact, I'm still in the ramifications of that cassette tape. And there are other things that I guess I could mention, but uh, one other was a keynote talk that I heard up at a convention in Nashville. I was I was at this uh, National Religious Broadcasters Convention there for a totally different purpose, but I went into a keynote talk, and I heard a guy named Michael Hyatt share a Uh, Talk about social media and membership websites and things like that and blogging. And I thought, wow, it sounds really great. And so I started blogging, and that was like 11 years ago. And God knew that I would need that at, uh, you know, about five years ago. And by that time, I had developed quite a following on social media and blogging to where when I needed it, I had another career right in my pocket ready to go. God knew that all along. So if you think about your life, you could probably pick out the guitars, the cassette tapes, the keynote speeches that you thought were just sort of, you know, this is what I'm doing today, when God knew that he placed that insignificant, seemingly insignificant moment in your life to change your life, or to prepare you for change. God works through ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary things on our behalf. Turn, if you would, to the book of Ruth. We are continuing in a little short series on this great book of Ruth, and what I've just described to you with my guitar, cassette tape, and keynote talk is exactly what we'll see in the book of Ruth. Ruth had insignificant, seemingly insignificant moments that God used in a powerful way in her life, and what we're going to glean from this, no pun intended, the gleaning, is that this is how God works in our life. And if he's done it in the past, then we can know, we can know he is doing it today. Ruth chapter 2. We looked at chapter 1 last time around. You may remember as the story began, there was this family that left Bethlehem. A man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons left Bethlehem during a time of famine, went and sojourned for 10 years in Moab. They left the land of Israel, probably shouldn't have done that, but they did, and they, during a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this family decided to go to Moab. Well, the father dies, and so the sons marry Moabite women, and then the sons die without having any uh, children. And so the mother, uh, Naomi, is left with her two daughters-in-law, and Naomi has no children. So she left with a husband and, and two sons, and now she's back to, about to head back to Bethlehem with nobody but two daughters-in-law. In fact, one of the daughters-in-law says, you know what, I'm heading back to Moab. So this woman, Naomi, comes back with one daughter-in-law and no husband or no sons. And in it, the culture of Israel, if you if you were a widow who was childless, that was like, you know, as bad as it could be as far as your financial future, security, and of course your family line. And because property passed on through men, if you didn't have a man in your family, the property is going to pass off to the the next relative close to you. So it's like her she was destitute in every sense of the word. But we're told. At the very end of chapter 1, that they return in chapter 1, verse 22. Look at that with me. Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, her return from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There's almost this sense of now their, their, uh, their future is about to change. They left during a time of famine. They came back during a time of barley harvest. Well, chapter 2, let's get going. We're going to try to make our way through chapter 2 and 3 and then save the grand finale for uh, next week. Chapter 2, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, "'Please let me go to the field "'and glean among the ears of grain "'after one in whose sight I may find favor.' "'And she said to her, "'Go, my daughter,' So she departed, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. So we're introduced here in verse 1 to a brand new character, a man named Boaz. And verse 1 is just sort of a parenthetical add-on, it doesn't say Oh, You know, by the way, Naomi had this kinsman, a man of great wealth, this great guy, a uh, family of Elimelech whose name was Boaz, and then verse 2, and Ruth says, let me go glean in Boaz's field. That's not at all what it says. We are introduced to Boaz, while as yet Ruth doesn't know anything about Boaz, but we do. So we're kind of given the inside track now of, oh, by the way, there's this other character. Okay, now back back at the ranch. Meanwhile, here's what's going on in Ruth and Naomi's life. And we're told here that Ruth takes the initiative, and she happens to come to the field. And she takes this initiative to glean. So, uh, also about Boaz, we're told that he is a man of great wealth. In, in verse 1, it says, a man, my translation says, a man of great wealth. So you may have a translation that says a mighty man of valor. The original Hebrew actually refers to, um, uh, it's the same phrase that's going to be used of Ruth in the next chapter, and it's the same phrase that's used of a a woman of excellence in Proverbs 31. It's this person who is uh, a person of character. It's not just wealth, but it's like the ideal person that Boaz is this, you know, Superman with a cape type thing. And he uh, is of the family of Elimelech. Ruth decides that she's going to glean. Now she may not necessarily have known uh, what the Scripture says, but she definitely knew the, uh, the allowance of the culture of that day that the poor were able to go into the fields of the rich and were to glean in the corners of the field. Let me just read for you Leviticus 23 verse 22. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. The poor and the alien. That's Ruth. She was both, wasn't she? She was from Moab, and she was poor. And so there's this expectation that if she were to go, she would be able to glean at least in the corners of the field and be able to get something. And notice Ruth doesn't sit around waiting for a check in the mail. She takes the initiative. She says, "Let me go glean." She takes the initiative, and the author doesn't want us to miss this. There in verse two, uh, verse three, she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come. The Hebrew literally says her chance, chanced upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, the one that we were introduced to in verse 1. Superman, the guy in the family, uh, the, the, the family of Elimelech, she happened to come to his field. Of all the places she could have gone, she happened to come to Boaz's field. So here, here, this is where the guitar and the cassette tape shows up in Ruth's life. She had no idea that this was happening, that she happened to come to the field of the man that she's going to marry. I hope I didn't ruin that for you. (laughs) But that's what's going to happen. Well, here's the first principle, real early on, but boy, it is so relevant. Our so-called chances are God's choices. Our so-called chances are God's choices. The text says she happened to come, or literally, her chance chanced upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Ruth took the initiative to work, and notice she didn't take the initiative to hunt for a husband. She took the initiative to work, to just do what's necessary, do the next right thing. And God led her to the place that he wanted her to be. I used this so often in the, in the lives of our daughters as we were raising them. I would tell them, as they would always often say, Dad, when am I going to get married? There's no man. It's just, there's just no more men left at all. <laughs> and I just, And I would just say, you know what? Remember Ruth? She didn't hunt for a husband. She just did the next right thing, and God brought him along when it was time. That a marriage partner, be it a man, a husband, or a wife, is not a quest. It is a discovery. It's not something you search for. It's something that God brings to you when it's time. And this is the way it was with Ruth. But we're way ahead of ourselves here. But verse 3, she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. So the father uses these normal, everyday, everyday details in his grand plan. Ruth was faithful to move, and God was faithful to guide." And this is really how the will of, figuring out the will of God works in our lives. There's two different types of, of God's will. There's right and wrong, and there's right and left. Right and wrong is clear in the Scriptures. Right and left is not so clear all the time in the Scriptures. Like right and wrong is uh, issues of morality, right and left is issues of, you know, who do I marry or, or where do I live? What job do I take? This isn't always clear. But the way that we figure out the right and left is we just stay within the bounds of the right and wrong and we trust God to guide us. It's like what Paul writes in uh, Romans 12 where he says to renew your mind and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. There is this aspect of doing the part of the will of God that you know and trusting him to reveal the part that you do not know. This is exactly what Ruth did. If you think about it, it is really tough to steer a parked car. It's a lot easier for God to direct somebody who is moving. So if you're waiting on something great to happen in your life, you know, that God has just not brought it along yet, make sure you're still busy doing what you know you should do. And let him direct you. Let him redirect you. Let him slam doors. Let him open doors. But don't just sit there. God can't steer a parked car. And this is not what was happening in Ruth's life. She took the initiative to work, and God guided her to where he wanted her to be. The Proverbs tell us that when we plan our ways, God directs our steps. It's not an either-or, and this is just an amazing part of God's sovereignty. We plan our ways, God directs our steps. So which is it? It's both. It's both. We plan our ways, and God works through that to also direct our steps. And if you look back at your own life, you can see Often the things that we mistake as coincidences were actually God's providence stepping in and guiding us. But we want to let God be God. We don't want to try to force it, take shortcuts. Ruth takes the initiative to work, and God directs her. So, verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Now, pause real quick. Remember, this is the time of the judges. This is the time where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. This is the time when Samson is the judge. This is not necessarily a time of godly culture and context. And in this black time of the judges, you've got these stars, these few people, that God, the scriptures refer to as the remnant who are faithful. In the time of the judges, you've got Boaz and his reapers saying, God bless you, may the Lord be with you. So this is a great man. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty... "'Go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw.' "'Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, "'Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner?' Boaz replied to her, "'All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, "'and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth "'and came to a people that you did not previously know.' May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. What a conversation! When Ruth had the right to glean, notice she says, "Please let me glean." She didn't walk in with this entitled uh, mindset of, "Hey, you know, you owe me a living." <laughs> she walked in and said, "Please let me glean," even though the law gave her the right to do so. And notice also it says that that she would go behind. She wanted to be to glean behind. The way that it worked typically is that when they were working a field, the men would go out in front and they would cut all the stalks down. So they'd do the hard work of cutting the stalks. They would lay them on the ground in bundles and the the women would come and stack them on the ground. And then behind the women, the poor would come and pick up what's left over. Boaz says, nope, you get to work right up with the women. No more leftovers for you, Ruth. Boaz provides for Ruth several things, a place to work, a place to reap with the maids no longer behind them, protection from harm. So she's basically uh, he basically told his workers, don't insult her, don't make fun of her, you know, no catcalls, nothing inappropriate, protect her, and he provides for her drinking water from water that's already been drawn. I mean, he is going above and beyond And Ruth says, "'Why in the world have I found favor in your eyes?' Interesting word. The word favor there is literally the word for grace. And we look back up in verse 2. "'What was it that she said? "'The Ruth said to Naomi, "'Please let me go into the field and glean among the ears "'after one in whose sight I may find favor.'" Same word, that I may find grace. And she's saying, "'Why in the world would you treat me, a foreigner, like this?' And Boaz says, because you are a woman of character. Everybody knows it, from the servant all the way up to me. Everybody in this little small town knows about you, that you're a woman of character, that you left your home in Moab to come and care for your mother-in-law. Boaz praises Ruth and says, and prays for her that the Lord would reward her. And verse 12, he says, May the Lord reward your work. May your wages be full under whose wing for, uh, for the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So Ruth, uh, she, she found a great place to work, to provide for the family. And as far as Ruth knows, that's all this is, that God has led her and God has provided for her. And um, so let's keep reading because the story only gets better. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her and you shall purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her." So once again, Ruth had worked behind the reapers, now she is invited to sit beside them. And uh, Boaz has no obligation at all to feed this poor person lunch, but brings Ruth right up to uh, the status of one of one of his reapers, one of his servants. And notice it says, he served her. I bet that didn't happen every day in Boaz's field, and he protects her, as we've said. He tells his servants, no insults. And then at the end of the day, look what happens. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave it to Naomi, what she had left over after she was satisfied, meaning her leftovers from lunch. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. You can almost see the light going off in Naomi's head, you know, ding, 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 ding. Naomi said to her daughter in law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. You can see her wheels are already turning. To the dead, what does that mean? She's talking about her husband and her sons, and she's already thinking ahead. This guy is one of our kinsmen redeemers, and, 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 and the story goes in her mind. If you know what she's thinking, then you know what she's thinking, right? <laughs> Okay, verse 20, again Naomi said to her, "'The man is our relative. "'He is one of our closest relatives,' "'or literally, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. "'Then Ruth the Moabitess said, "'Furthermore, he said to me, "'You should stay close to my servants "'until they have finished all my harvest.'" And otherwise, keep on coming back. Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, "'It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, "'so that others do not fall upon you in another field.'" So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law." I love the way Ruth, the chapters in Ruth, uh, lay out. Like chapter one begins with a time of famine, it ends with the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter two begins with the beginning of the barley harvest and ends with the end of the barley harvest and even the wheat harvest. You've got these wonderful little you know, transition points, and now we are at another transition point that, that she is gleaning until the end of these harvests. Then what are they gonna do? What happens next? I mean, it's been great so far, but when harvest is over, the harvest is over. What are you gonna do at that point for food? Well, this is what you call a turning point in the story for the first time, we see Naomi smiling, and don't you know she is smiling? Working from morning until evening, Ruth gets what we're told here is about an, an ephah of barley. This was about 27 pounds, or if you want to think of it in terms of size, it was about three gallons of barley. And she takes this home for a day's work. And Naomi looks at, at this, and she's like, where in the world did you work today? And, of course, they have the conversation. But this would have fed them for a week, and Ruth goes back every day to this place of great blessing. And when Naomi hears the name Boaz, she learns what we were told in verse 1. Ruth learns what we were told in verse 1, that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. What is a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer is a relative who redeems, a kinsman. Who redeems, a kinsman redeemer. And what they would do in the Old Testament, there was this law that was required, a number of things also outside the law, more of a cultural thing. But a kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to protect uh, needy family members. He would also provide an heir by marrying any widow that uh, had not yet had kids. And you would also redeem their land so that the land would stay in the family. And there were a couple of other stipulations that aren't really relevant to the story of Ruth that the kinsman and redeemer could do. So if Naomi knew about this redeemer you know, clause, why is she just now bringing this up? Because it was not an obligation. Or it wasn't necessarily something that was forced. You were sort of expected to do it, but if you didn't do it, you were just kind of a jerk. And in the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting. It talks about uh, if you're not going to do it, then, you know, the lady could take the sandal off and spit in your face. And there's a, there's a few other things that could happen. It's like, you know, it's really bad if you choose to not do this. But you didn't have to do it. You had the the choice to walk away from it. And so Naomi knew this. You know, here they are walking back in. I mean, who in the world is going to redeem redeem for us? We're just... Poor widows, So there wasn't much expectation, but when they see Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, beginning to do all this for Ruth, Naomi is thinking, you know, this guy might just do it. He might be the, the kinsman redeemer who is going to provide for us. And so... They get excited, or at least Naomi's wheels are really turning. The, bar, the barley harvest was from April to May, and the wheat harvest was from May to June. So he had about three months of time that, wrote, that Ruth was going to Boaz's field every day, except Sabbath, every day they would work. And Ruth and Boaz continued to have the interaction, which isn't recorded here, but you know what's happening. But all this time, we're told, at the end of uh, – Chapter 2, that she lived with her mother-in-law. So Boaz, this great superman, has made no move. He knows that he's a kinsman redeemer. Naomi knows he's a kinsman redeemer. Ruth knows he's a kinsman redeemer. But he ain't doing no kinsman redeeming. (laughs) He's just doing the boss thing, the very gracious boss thing. But why isn't he doing anything? We'll have to see. Look at chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking." Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say, I will do. So it's the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and what they would do is they would go to the threshing floor, and they would thresh it all out, and basically all the grain that would fall, they'd pile it up in a big pile, and it was like money laying there. And so the owner would typically spend the night there to guard his to guard you know the whole produce from the harvest. So Naomi knows where Boaz is going to be all by himself at a particular time, and Naomi says, "Ruth, I want to. Uh, here's here's what you're going to do," and and I just love it that that uh, that Naomi is obviously a a uh, what would you call it an experienced Married woman. I mean, notice the instructions she gives. Don't say anything till the guy's eaten. <laughs> Get cleaned up. Look really good. I mean, these are her words, not my words. He tells her, or she, she, she tells Ruth. You know, wait till the man's eaten. Wait till he's drunk. Not not drunk, but has drunk. <laughs> And he's in a good state, you know. Don't talk to him during the cowboy game. It might be today's translation. In chapter 2, we saw Ruth taking the initiative to provide for Naomi. In chapter 3, as it begins, we see Naomi taking the initiative to provide for Ruth. In chapter 1, we saw Naomi tell the two daughters-in-law, go back to the house of your mother because it was the mother who usually did the matchmaking, as it were. And here we have Naomi doing exactly that. She says, "'Shall I not seek security for you?' But why this nighttime meeting? Why didn't Naomi suggest that Ruth just approach Boaz one day out in the field? Hey, Boaz, can I talk to you for a minute? How about doing that kinsman-redeemer thing? Why at night? Because again, the kinsman redeemer had the option to refuse, and it would have been pretty embarrassing to do that in front of everybody. So, so uh, Naomi picks a private time, at a most advantageous time. He's going to be happy. He's going to have a pile of money laying there, basically with the with the uh, the grain. Uh, Ruth's going to look good. She's going to smell good. He's satisfied. He's eaten. I mean, she is picking the best time to pop the question literally and hoping that Boaz will say yes. Well, let's look what happens. Ruth gets all ready. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain... And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. You are a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So she quietly approaches. She uncovers his feet and lays there. Now, why uncover his feet? There have been all manner of interpretations on what this means. Some, I can't even tell you what it means, so I won't. But I don't think it means anything other than what it says. She uncovered his feet. Why uncover his feet? We don't know. But it, if you've ever slept with your feet uncovered, you know, eventually you're going you're gonna to wake up. My feet are cold. I think that's all it was. That's my opinion. The text doesn't tell us. There's nothing in culture that tells us. But I think it's what, that's what it is. In fact, I was thinking about this just the other night, and I woke up, and I had my arm outside the sheet. My arm was freezing. It woke me up. So I got it on the covers, and oh, I felt great. Well, I think that's probably what's going on here. But the guy wasn't waking up. Notice it says that something startled him. How many of you are ever startled by cold feet? Probably not. So I don't know, maybe Ruth takes and throws a tin can across the, the threshing floor or something, but something startles him, thank goodness. And he wakes up and it says a woman is there. It doesn't say Ruth is there. He doesn't know who, who it is, a woman. Asks, who are you? Well, you can tell it's a woman. And then when Ruth says it's Ruth, your maid and she doesn't waste any time, she says, "Spread the corner of your garment over me. Spread the, your covering over your maid, because you are a kinsman redeemer." Interesting. She uses Boaz's own prayer. I wouldn't say against him, but with him, because when she says, "Spread the covering over your maid," it's the same thing that she had that that Boaz had had prayed for her earlier in chapter 2 when he said, uh, May the Lord bless you, verse 12, May your blessing be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. The word there for wings is wings, obviously, like a a, a chicken would cover, you know, her chicks and protect. This is the idea of what God would do to protect. Jesus even used that picture when he talked about Jerusalem, how often I've wished to, to cover you like a hen covers her chicks. And now Ruth is using those same words and saying, spread the corner of your garment or wing. It's the same word. Spread your wing over me, buddy. You know, put, put your prayer where your mouth is, sort of, as, as it was. And notice Boaz's response. He immediately, he doesn't say, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm really not interested in doing that. He could have. But instead in verse 10, he says, may you be blessed of the Lord. You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after the young men. What does that mean? Why is that a kindness? It's not a kindness to... What's that? He's well, he's older. He's, he's older. Yeah, but he's not old. Yeah. You know, well, What's old? I mean, after a while, after all, this is the marathon <laughs> class, you know? There ain't nobody old. We're just more mature young people. But... Um, it does mean that he is older he continually call, refers to her as my daughter the idea that she's probably younger no doubt younger but the kindness that he is referring to at more than the first the first kindness was when she came back with Naomi now she came back with Naomi and could have married potentially the implication is she could have married someone younger rich or poor But she didn't. She chose Boaz because Boaz, even though he's a little older, uh, he's a kinsman redeemer. And this would take care of Naomi and Naomi's family. So Ruth wasn't just looking out for Ruth. Ruth was looking out for Naomi. This is why Boaz says this kindness is even better than the first. You know what I praised you for earlier, taking care of Naomi? Now you could have married anybody, but you chose me. And so he praises her because of that. This is the first time in the story of Ruth that Ruth has asked anything for herself. And even in this, she's not just asking for herself, she's asking on behalf of Naomi. Well, here's our second principle that we can glean. I like just to use that as much as we can here in this story. We glean from the text every good opportunity is not a call from God. How do we get that from the text? Because the implication is uh, she could have married someone else, and, uh, but this was not God's will. It was God's will that she married Boaz. Every good opportunity is not a call from God. Boaz says there in verse 10, Ruth evidently had other opportunities, but they were not redeemers. And so Ruth goes along with Naomi's plan for Ruth to approach Boaz. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. We're going to have a lot of opportunities that seem to be good and that are within God's moral will but may not be God's best for us. Think about Jesus. Jesus applied this often. Jesus didn't heal everybody he came in contact with. He could have. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and healed everybody in Israel or on the whole planet in one moment, but he didn't. In fact, we know from, John, uh, from Acts 3 and 4 that the, the man who was at the gate beautiful had been there for many, many years, which means Jesus would have passed him many, many times. But he, he waited so that Peter and John could go up and heal him that day. So every good opportunity is not a call from God, and this is really very freeing. Again, we see this in the life of Jesus. Remember when in uh, the early chapters of Mark, He was, people were searching for Jesus for healing, and Jesus said, let me go somewhere else so I can preach, because that's why I came. Jesus could have had a great healing ministry, but he says that's not my first and primary priority. First priority is to preach. So give yourself a break when you know that you are way too busy, and yet people keep asking you to do stuff. You know, I I can't say yes to everything, even though they're great and wonderful things. Not every good opportunity is a call from God. And Ruth applied this simple principle even in the selection of a husband. Ruth waits for God's best. But now a wrinkle gets tossed into this wonderful story, and we finally discover why Boaz hasn't proposed up to this point. What has been his problem? Well, Now we're about to see. Look at verse 11. He says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it. And he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So this is... uh, one of those scenes that's that's got you know tension all over it you can uh, you can imagine here you've got two people who really want to be married alone at night in private and he says go ahead and stay the night but notice the text says that she she lay at his feet the whole time at his feet you think they slept much that night I don't know. If I was Boaz, I'd have been lying wide awake. <laughs> counting the stars. Ruth, probably the same. The expectation, Lord, what is your will here? Why would you have brought us all this way only to have me marry some guy I don't even know when you've given me, introduced me to Boaz? So there is, there is tension in every way and Boaz provides, and sort of a, um, sort of a good faith on his, uh, on his part, he doesn't send her away empty. And that word empty ought to also sort of raise a flag in our mind. Where have we seen that word empty before? When Naomi comes back into Bethlehem, you remember she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Uh, Boaz says, I don't want you going back to your mother-in-law empty there's the sense in which God has already begun to fill that empty tank that uh, Naomi perceives is her life. She lays at his feet. She is known as a woman of excellence. That is the same phrase that that is used of Boaz in the earlier chapter, Um, that he is a man of great wealth. Here it's translated a woman of excellence. I think we said last time that the book of Ruth – comes after the book of proverbs in the hebrew bible hebrew bible so proverbs 31 you know is all about the woman of excellence and then immediately after that you have the story of ruth the illustration of a woman of excellence same hebrew word and then right after that you know what book this is like double jeopardy you know what book comes right after um, ruth in the hebrew bible song of solomon Again, this is not a mistake. This is part. This is the, the way that the Jews, uh, the Hebrews arranged their Bible and it had a very logical flow. So what comes after it for us? You know, 1 Samuel, it's like we probably ought to re- rethink this. The Hebrews had a, had a great idea. So let's look at the end because it gets really good. Uh, as if it's not been great up to this point. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "'How did it go, my daughter?' Don't you know she asked that. And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, "'These six measures of barley he gave to me,' for he said, "'Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed.' Then she said, "'Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today.'" Of course he's not going to rest. Literally it's I love this when uh, when Ruth comes home she asks how did it go literally the original Hebrew reads who are you It's almost like, you know, Mrs. Boaz? <laughs> who are you? What's your status? And Ruth lets her know about this nearer kinsman redeemer. So now they understand why Boaz has been waiting. And Speaking of waiting, she says, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Boaz has been waiting all the harvest. He has been waiting and not pushing and not even bringing it up, waiting on God. He knew he was a kinsman redeemer. He clearly was willing. In fact, this may be why he's been so generous to Ruth's family or to Ruth and Naomi up to this point. He's like, you know, I can't do more than just be generous and stay inside of propriety. I can't even bring it up because there is a Redeemer who is closer. But now that you bring it up, I'm going to tell you, uh, we, can, we can make this legal, we can make this right, but I've got to first go talk to this other kinsman Redeemer. So speaking of waiting, we'll have to wait till next week to look at that. You're welcome to read ahead if you'd like, chapter 4, it's right there in the Bible. But it must have been a difficult thing to do, waiting. Boaz has been waiting for months. Ruth only has to wait for a day to figure out how this is going to turn out. But don't you know, they are in prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord, please let it go the way we want it to go. Well, the principles we've looked at, let me just summarize those again. Our so-called chances are God's choices, and every good opportunity is not a call from God. What we learn from the book of Ruth, we also see in our lives, God guides us through the ordinary events of life into, into his will, and he urges us to wait for his best. Uh, this is, this is the, the very words that Naomi uses for Ruth here in verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. We're called to do that, and I think personally that waiting on God is the most difficult Discipline that we have to develop in our lives. It's tough waiting on God. Have you ever tried to do that? (laughs) It's tough. The only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing you had. (laughs) So it's always a good idea to do it. Well, let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to continue to walk through this delightful story that is more than just words on a page, it actually happened, where your providence guided and stepped into the lives of Ruth and Naomi, these destitute widows, who cast themselves upon you, and you did not fail them. You guided them through the everyday would-be coincidences to bring them into your will in your timing. Father, we know also that this is not merely here to to lead up to the wonderful chapter 4 that gives us the insight of why this is in the Bible, but you've also given it to us as a lesson for our lives, that we would be so wise to wait on you, to wait until your timing, to not simply take the first good opportunity that's there, but rather to wait on your best, to realize that not every opportunity is a call from God. Remind us also, Father, that our so-called chances are your choices, that the insignificant events of this day may be the very things that you use in significant ways in our lives. So we continue to trust you. We continue to wait on you for those those boazes, not necessarily people, but those, those means of provision that you intend to bring, those solutions to our struggles. And we know that you will because we, uh, we have this in the Scripture and in various other places in the text, we know that you are a sovereign God who works all things according to your will in our lives. So we wait for you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.